Welcome to Ideas at Work, a podcast featuring conversations with scientists, academics, writers, and thinkers who are influencing our time. The world has changed. Those ideas we once believed to be true will now be viewed through an entirely different lens post-COVID-19. What I'm interested in discussing is the emergence of a new normal. What changes, what stays the same, and what slips into the annals of history? Also, my viewpoint is anchored in two things. One, in organizations. What is the role of the company in these new and turbulent times? And secondly, what are the main ideas we need to consider or reconsider? I will not be talking to interesting people with interesting viewpoints who have done interesting things, but rather diving into conversations with people who I think are propagating the most important ideas that inform our situation. Today, I'll be chatting with Jeffrey West. Jeffrey is a theoretical physicist whose primary interests have been in fundamental questions in physics. West served as president for the Santa Fe Institute from 2005 to 2009. Prior to joining the Santa Fe Institute, he was the leader and founder of the High Energy uh, Physics Group at Los Alamos National Laboratory. And he is known for his work in describing the universal scaling laws that pervade biology from the molecular genomic scale up through mitochondria and cells to whole organisms and ecosystems. This work, outlined in his 2017 scale, provides a framework for quantitative understanding of problems ranging from fundamental issues in biology, such as cell size, growth, metabolic rate, DNA nucleotide substitution rates, and the structure and dynamics of ecosystems to questions at the forefront of medical research, such as age, sleep, and cancer. I plan to discuss Jeffrey's ideas in an attempt to understand the relationship of these scaling laws to the structure and dynamic of social organizations, such as cities and corporations, including the relationships between economies of scale, growth, innovation, wealth creation, and their implications for long-term survivability and sustainability of companies and their surrounding societies. You should know, Jeffrey's ideas are in the realm of the biggest of the big picture stuff. Why do we shuffle off this mortal coil? How long will we live? And why do we die? Why does everything die? Or does it? Why do cities seem not to die, even though their constituents most certainly do? And what about organizations? Are they like cities or biological creatures? If we know the cause of these calamities, could we stop them or remedy them? These are the questions that we'll be investigating. As I suspect, after COVID-19, there'll be a great sorting, a sort of dividing line, a BC and AD, if you will. And some ideas and some organizations will wither and others will prosper. As organizational people, we need to ask ourselves why. Are there ideas that can make sense of the life and death of creatures, organizations, societies, and all of humanity? We have no better guide than Jeffrey West. Jeffrey, welcome to Ideas at Work. Toby, thank you very much. Lovely to be with you. Looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah, no, lovely to be here. Now, do you uh, do you agree with this thesis that I'm throwing out there that that this is really an epoch-defining event, the, the COVID-19 crisis? Well, it is certainly a dividing event, and it is certainly something, you know, I think we all recognize um, is unique. Uh, there's never been anything like it. We've had lots of pandemics, lots of epidemics. We've had great world wars. Um, um, we've had revolutions and so on. But of course, the defining characteristic of this one is that it is the first truly global event that's ever happened in terms of human beings. All human beings 
on the planet are affected. And the only thing that came to my mind uh, that compares to it, and it doesn't, in a way it doesn't, but it's sort of a cousin to it, was the uh, marvelous recognition of Stuart Brand uh, that uh, by just showing a picture that was taken in the 60s by a satellite of the entire planet, right. this kind of famous blue orb, right. um, that was that sort of brought us all together right. in a sense. I mean, that is that every human being recognized that that was, so to speak, our mother and we all were belonging. And so that was a universal global event. But of course, it has a completely different character to what's happening now. That was sort of a togetherness event and uh, a feel-good event, if you like, and was very much of the times of the 60s, 70s, and so on. Um, this one is threatening. It's, it's a um, war of the world, H.G. Wells, war of the worlds. And in that sense, it is... Um, uh, a, a, um, a before and after phenomenon for the globe. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I, I think it's um, incredibly challenging to try to think through what are the things, your very questions, in fact, what are the, what, what are the characteristics that we now take for granted, for example, that will, be, will no longer survive or will have tr dramatic changes uh, both uh, in terms of, you know, in terms of all aspects of our lives, cultural, uh, financial, um, economic, uh, political, and so on. And uh, it's, it is very hard to intuit or guess what those will be. But I certainly, obviously, like everybody else uh, that likes to think about such things, I've given it some thought. Um, and, uh, but I can't, in terms of your actual question, um, I think the question is, yes, on the one hand, it is uh, an epoch-changing moment, mm. but uh, qualitatively, because mm -hmm. it will be a defining event. On the other hand, how big it will be, it's real you know, long-term effects kind of quantitatively is very difficult as to... Uh, to assess, as well as what I said earlier, you know, what aspects of society's socioeconomic life, cultural life are going to change. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I do in principle. Okay. Okay. I mean, you said like everyone else, you're thinking about it, but unlike most everyone else, you actually have some, <laughs> you know, universal laws that may help us <laughs> predict. Um, so maybe that is a good segue just for you to, to, Give us a sort of potted history of, of the scaling laws that, that you have helped articulate. Okay, yes, because no, it's certainly true that, uh, just to take from, uh, from what you said, that uh, the kind of work I've been involved in, um, the, the scaling laws, which we'll come to in a moment, um, have built into them, and one of their great attractions uh, is their universality, that... Uh, meaning that they, not necessarily they're universal in the true sense of that word, but they're universal in the sense that they basically apply to everything to varying degrees. And, right. and that's something maybe we can discuss a little bit later. Mm -hmm. But roughly speaking, a scaling law is something that is conceptually quite simple because um, 
It simply is a response to the question, if you have a system that could be an animal, it could be an automobile, it could be a company, um, whatever, it could be your house. Um, if I increase its size or even decrease its size, what happens to all its multiple characteristics? Right. You know, if you, you know, so if you double the size of a house, uh, do you have to have twice the size of a heating system? I mean, right. Or, uh, and so on. Or the one that got me into this was if you double the size of an animal, or rather if you look at an animal that's twice the size of another one, does it need twice as much food to stay alive? Is right. its metabolic rate uh, twice as big? Right. And uh, that was the sort of question. And and by the way, it is you know I didn't come out come to this out of nowhere. Um, this you know scaling in its various manifestations um, is integral to science, engineering, and technology, either, both explicitly because those questions like that are asked, but also implicitly because when we derive understanding built into that understanding is how does the system scale? How does the system scale up? I mean, everything from, you know, I mean, how the, the expansion of the universe from the Big Bang is a scaling problem. How did the universe scale from something very tiny to the enormous scale it is now? So, so it sort of pervades everything and becomes a way of thinking. Right. So that, that was the background as uh, in terms of the questions to do with uh, systems that are not physical like uh, biological systems or social systems, organizations. Mm -hmm. And the thing that had um, intrigued me um, for um, quite a while, actually, uh, was the a, a very famous scaling law that had been um, uncovered uh, almost 100 years ago mm -hmm. um, for metabolic rate, the very thing we just talked about, namely how much energy does a, an organism need per day to stay alive? Right. And, um, you know, at the most naive level, if you didn't think about anything, you'd say, well, obviously, look, if you double the size of an organism, you need twice as, you know, it has twice as many cells, so you need twice as much energy because there's twice as many customers out there, so to speak. Right. And uh, what was discovered... Um, uh, in the 30s, basically, was that that was not the case. It was, in fact, the case, something something extraordinary evolved. And that was that if you double the size, you don't need twice as much. Very roughly speaking, you only need 75% as much. And, and the scaling law and why it has a universal character is because you can double it from 2 grams to 4 grams, 20 grams to 40 grams, to 20 kilograms to... 40 kilograms and so on. It doesn't matter how you double it. Right. It's always the same 25% savings. Yes. And uh, so there's this extraordinary systematic law um, that has this 25%, this one quarter built into it. Right. And uh, the thing that's remarkable about that is not just that you have this funny systematic savings every time you grow, that is, there's an economy of scale. Yeah. But what is really amazing is, or so puzzling, rather, maybe, is that, um, you know, we believe in natural selection, we believe there's a process of evolution, and uh, 
in and and the sort of version of that that uh, we think of uh, on a sort of uh, popular basis is that um, everything sort of happens randomly. Every organism has its own unique evolutionary history. It, uh, it everything is historically contingent. It happened from a bunch of accidents. Mm-hmm. The environment that it was in was accidental. It might have changed accidentally. It, it was the survival of the fittest. All these extraordinary phenomena are going on. Yes, the greatest complexity of complexities. Therefore, you would have thought, uh, if you measured something like metabolic rate, which is the most fundamental of all quantities uh, for for sustaining an organism. They would, you, know, you plotted them on a on a on a graph on the vertical axis, metabolic rate; on the horizontal axis, the size, the weight of the organism. You would see these points sort of ran almost randomly across the graph, because reflecting the historical contingency. Right. So what you do find, in fact, is the mathematical representation of what I said a moment ago. Is they lie on a single line. They all sort of follow this very simple line. And if you plot it logarithmically, which means if you plot it by going up by factors of 10 on each axis, it's the simplest possible behavior. It's a straight line right. with a slope of three quarters, which is that 75%. And that is sort of mind blowing when you, you know, if you. Well, it's, I don't know if you're tempted. I mean, when I encountered this idea, it was of such like universal simplicity. It's one of these numinous, borderline spiritual. Yes. I don't know how you felt when you began to extrapolate this out to more universal things from creatures, but I think we'll talk about that. But did you have a, did you have a quiver of, of peering, you know, into the deep and discovering some real fundamental? Yeah. I didn't, when I first saw it, I, I, all I had was all, but what I did have was, my God, what the hell is going on? This is amazing. Why isn't this the, one of the first things you learn in biology? And right. why isn't this considered one of the great paradoxes of biology? Well, it is, and it was. Mm-hmm. But uh, And a lot of work was done on these kinds of phenomena in the 30s and 40s and up, even into the early 50s. But, of course, it was totally eclipsed by the molecular revolution. And of course, the discovery of DNA, genes, and so on, and that began to completely dominate biology. Uh, and and so it it moved everything to a highly reductionistic model, looking rightly so, looking at the fundamental quantities, genes, and seeing everything by, through a genetic lens. Mm-hmm. And what was lost in that was the big picture, holistic, systemic view that these scaling laws encapsulate. And therefore, what was lost was that despite the extraordinary complexity and diversity of life underneath it, apparently there is an extraordinary simplicity represented by not just this scaling law, and I should add before we move on, that what is even more amazing is that if you look at any physiological quantity or any life history event, meaning you know heart rates, the rate of diffusion of oxygen across membranes, how long you live, how many offspring you have, how, how long you take to grow, the length of your aorta, whatever. Mm-hmm. And you plot them this way. They all look like those simple straight lines. And each of them has a slope 
somehow related to this one quarter. Right. So that's the universality that I talked about earlier. And it's extraordinary. It's like numerology almost. This It's numerology and it's like, so, you know, you could, when I, you know, one interpretation of this, of course, I hate to say this, this is of course, well, one thing it looks like is that there's the, the great engineer in the sky. Right. He's got some simple template and right. he's saying, look, we're going to design all the organisms. <laughs> this is the way you do it. Uh, now, I did not believe that. Yeah. So I don't, that is, but, but there is actually a, a, an explanation that, that is grounding the math. And so tell us about networks. And yes. relationship so networks. exactly. So I got very interested in this and I got interested in it by the way, uh, what my real um, gateway into this was that I had become, uh, I'd always been actually um, sort of fascinated by death. I mean, <laughs> this morbid interest in death, dying, you know, what, what is it? Why do we die? What is the origin of death and so on? Even as a, you know, young man, young boy, even. Um, and so one of the things I had become interested in was the biology of aging and mortality. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that lifespan, how long you live, also follows one of these scaling laws. Mm-hmm. And um, so uh, that's what got me originally motivated to take look at this seriously and ask the question, you know, where do these come from? Because if you ask, why is it that something dies, whatever it is, you first have to understand, obviously, what is keeping it alive in the first place? Mm-hmm. What was the mechanism that kept it alive? in this case, metabolism, and what's going wrong with that? Why, why uh, you know, what, what's happened that it suddenly degrades or continuously degrades and so on? So I, I, that's why I started looking at metabolism, came across these scaling laws, and then asked that very question, what are the, what are the underlying principles, the mathematical, physical principles, or biological principles that give rise to these scaling laws. Right. And, and um, when I started thinking about that, the first thing you realize is that uh, one of the things that's curious about this is that these scaling laws, and I didn't emphasize this earlier, are true across all types or, or taxonomic groups mm-hmm. of, of animals and plants. I mean, it's sort of amazing that the trees and plants out there right. satisfy very similar scaling laws with that quarter power as you and I do. Right. And so you say, gee whiz, you know, uh, you know, we're so completely different. What is it that is common to us? I mean, genes are common to us, of course, but they're very different kinds of genes. What is common to us? Well, the thing that you begin to realize that's common to us is first of all, we all have a, the same challenge. We're all made of cells, and those cells have to be fed, roughly speaking, democratically and efficiently. And the way nature has evolved to do that is sort of the obvious one, is develop networks. Mm-hmm. Have these networks that take energy, food, and distributes them in an efficient way to the cells. And so the things you realize that is common, whether it's a cell itself, uh, a, a tree, um, an insect or a human being is that we're all sustained by the flow of energy resources and of course information 
in networks. Right. So I hypothesized that the origin of these scaling laws is in the mathematics and physics of these networks because they're universal and they transcend the evolved design. Right. Even though the evolved design of a tree, an insect, and a human being are quite different, they still all have these branching networks. And it is that that is somehow the origin of it. And and I was I started working on that and then was very fortunate that it just so happened a marvelous biologist uh, named James Brown, Jim Brown, had been associated with the Santa Fe Institute himself. And uh, we were brought together and it just so happens serendipitously, he, uh, unusually so for a biologist at that time, had himself become fascinated by such scaling laws because his expertise, he founded a field called um, uh, macro macroecology. Okay. There's a field that uh, he's the founder, thinking big, mm -hmm. uh, thinking across big scales rather than traditional in ecology, was thinking about local phenomena. And one of the things that had intrigued him was over big scales, there are these bloody scaling laws at work. And he wondered where they came from. And we just happened to come together after I'd spent some many months trying to figure it out. And then we did figure it out. It took us a long time. Yeah. But uh, we we eventually figured out, you know, getting all the I's dotted and T's crossed right. with, the, I, with all the mathematical theory. It's It's quite... It's quite complicated. Um, it's once you get the idea, but it's not. But you know, any competent it's mathematical so physicist can work it out. Right. And once you do it, out come all these scaling laws. It was sort of amazing. That now that was the moment right. that you asked me about earlier. Yes. Then I thought, my God, you know, I felt it was a it was a spiritual experience. Right. And I mean, this this is weird in a way. I began to feel, especially by the way, when I did it for, I did it, I worked it all out for um, things like mammals, animals. Yeah. And then I started thinking about plants and trees, which are quite different, the same kind of principles, network principles. And I figured it out for plants and trees. And then I extended it to forests, to an ecosystem, mm -hmm. and realized that the forest itself could be thought of as a superorganism that had the same properties as the individual tree. Right. And then I would go for walks in the forest. Yeah. And it looks like, you know, big trees, little trees, and there's this and that. It looks like some random mess. Right. And I'd walk through and I'd say, my God, I, I the, the mathematics revealed this extraordinary structure, this right. extraordinary regularity. And I walked that was a spiritual experience. Okay. That was when I really got me. Yeah. And and I felt I and ironically and weirdly, I almost felt I had nothing to do with it. Right. That I was a conduit. I mean it was sort of an egocentric kind of experience, but I did feel that I had been an instrument. Right. Sure. That uh, uh, to 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 expose this. Very similar so to it was wonderful. You know, if you if you talk to a musician, uh, I'm not a musician, but they'll say you know, when you play with flow, it's like the music just flows through you. It's probably mm. very similar. Yes. Okay, so you're walking in the forest and you realize there's these deep universal similarities between mice and trees. And it's predicated on the fact that there's networks in both that have to diffuse energy to its extremities. 
So a, you know, a house has an aorta, and a tree, in fact, is is kind of its trunk is kind of like an aorta, and getting energy yes. through the leaves. It is sort of it's very obvious when you think it is. it's the it's the analog. Yes, absolutely. And, and so at that point, did you go well? How universal is this? Does this work with not just with biological systems, but does it work with with yes. economic systems, with social systems, with companies, with cities? Did you did you then have that eureka moment at the same time? I would say that's a eureka moment. I did think of that, but I thought um, I didn't have, when I first started thinking along those lines, I didn't have the confidence or courage, frankly, to move ahead to explore that when I first thought about it. But being at the Santa Fe Institute, um, I was exposed to, um, you know, in, in the same building, to economists and social scientists and so on. And uh, that year, when I was thinking about such things, there were um, there was a um, anthropologist named Sander van der Leeuw and uh, an economist named David Lane, who were there uh, visiting, both senior people. And they became very intrigued by my work. Right. And they start, we started talking and about, you know, this is fantastic. You should apply this to social organizations. And I said, yes, I mean, think that it's hopeless. You know, I think it's not going to. They said, no, no, I'm sure, you know, we can try to put something together and so on. So to cut a long story short, that formed a uh, collaboration, um, which uh, began uh, first. Actually, we wrote a proposal. They were both European-based. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, David was in Italy and uh, Sander was in Paris and uh, we got a grant uh, a, a very generous grant from the European Union uh, and um, the work started uh, but the major thrust when I when we write it at least I was writing my part of the proposal was companies right. was that we would uh, work on companies and try to understand companies uh, or corporations, uh, as uh, you know, from this inspired by the biology, right? And 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 by the way, I just let me back off slightly, right? Uh, slight tangential mark. Much earlier than that, there was on the SFI board of trustees a man named Dick Foster. Okay. Uh, a few years earlier, he had left by this time. Dick. Uh, was um, a big shot, the sort of the analog to CEO of McKinsey. Right. And he was, um, uh, his expertise mostly ended up being in healthcare, but he wrote a very good book actually on companies. But he approached me one time on a visit to Santa Fe. He approached and said, I've got to have breakfast with you. And he said to me, Jeff, you should really apply all this work to companies. He said, you know, he said, and he said to me something I've never forgotten. He said, you know, there's probably 50 books a year people write on companies. People like me write them and the CEO of various companies write them when they retire and they tell you exactly how a company should be run and all the rest. And he said, let me tell you, it's all bullshit because no one really understands. <laughs> I can tell you from all the work we do for kids. And he said, you have given me this idea that maybe we can actually turn it into a science. Right. And I said, great. So he offered to support some of it. And I backed off 
because I said, I don't know anything. You know, it, I'm still in the middle of all the biology. I don't know enough and so on and so forth. But he had inspired me to keep it always in the back of my mind. So when this, the social scientists approached me and we had this proposal, it became natural to think about companies as the beginning of this enterprise. Mm. And uh, we wrote the, I wrote that proposal, but towards, I, I don't think it was before the proposal was funded or afterwards, I've forgotten. Um, I, was, I was totally naive. Um, I put together a small group uh, of younger people to work with me. And, uh, but I quickly discovered something that I, I don't know why in my naivete I'd taken for granted. Um, in biology, one of the great things was there was all this data and it was out there and you could get it. In fact, it was either on the web or it was in books, people had written books and you could get all this. And I sort of assumed that there was some analog to that. You know, if I wanted to find out everything about Shopify, you know, I just Google and it tells me everything, who's, you know, the whole thing. And it tells me all about every Canadian company and every, you know, just like every, you can get all the data on animals and plants and so on. Well, I discovered to my chagrin, no, that's, that, of course you can't. First we're, of all, most of it is proprietary. We have our secrets, Jeffrey. We're, we're more secret. Yeah, you're full of secrets, you guys. Well, there's obviously proprietary for good reason. And, uh, but and I also discovered that you could get some of it. Uh, there was a data set put together that you could get some that comes out of tax codes and so on. And in fact, in principle, it's, it's, it's supposed to be open. You're supposed to be able to get it. Uh, but I discovered that in, in actuality, in the US, I'm just about the US for the moment, you couldn't get it. I mean, you, you, the way you got this data was you had to go to Washington and they put you inside a, you know, a closed room and you can download bits and pieces. But you can get it. Companies have done it. And, but it costs some what seemed to be, we didn't have the money. We weren't funded. We didn't have the money and it went on the back burner. So that's what got me to work on cities because I said, okay, let's wait until we've done something. We'll then apply for money to get money to get this data. And then we'll start thinking about it. Cities, I it was obvious there was data. I thought cities are so boring, but let's work on it anyway, because we'll learn how to do it. And, uh, and, and I was proven totally wrong because cities turned out to be one of the most fascinating things I worked on. But that's how I got into the beginning of that. And that's why companies, which were the, as a social organization was the thing that intrigued me primarily at the beginning, went on the back burner for several years. And so, so tell us, so one, I think you and I've had this conversation. I, I, I don't know if it was you who came up with this, but this idea that, that the city may be the most uh, ingenious human invention, or yes. it's the most powerful. Do you, do, you, do you agree with that? Oh, yes, absolutely. I often say, and I'm not unique in this, that, uh, you know, the city is uh, the greatest machine invented by mankind. It is, you know, it's uh, the engine. It is the, the engine that allows us to be who we are because the, the, the whole point of an engine of, an, of, of, of a city, the whole point of a city in the sense, I mean, I'm anthropomorphizing it, but, but the, how it's evolved organically is it is the uh, machine, the engine 
whose purpose, <laughs> forgive it one, is to facilitate social interaction, right. is to bring people together, to interact, to exchange information, create ideas, innovate, create wealth, thereby increasing the quality and standard of living. Right. So that's one way of looking at the city and why it's been so successful and why it is that, um, you know, uh, all the great ideas basically have been generated in urban environments of one kind or another. So I, I want the great companies. I want to put a pin in that because I, I want to come back and talk about what the new normal will be like after the pandemic. Yes, very good, very good. But, but before we go there, um, tell me about what your science says about cities. So just to, just in recap, you know, yes. mice, wheatgrass, trees, spiders, humans, blue whales all have these sort of similar properties. This, yes. this scaling and this economies of scale as things get um, things get bigger. Tell me about cities. Did you find the same thing or was it a different thing? So um, two things here. First, let me just go back to the organisms again. Just as you said, you know, despite appearances of whale, a giraffe, a human being, and a mouse are actually scaled versions of one another. I mean, there's, there's one mammal and at this very coarse grain level, we're all versions of that. We're all scaled versions of that. Um, and, uh, and built into that is what you just repeated was that they uh, express a systematic economy of scale. The bigger you are, the less energy you need per gram of tissue to stay alive. Um, not only that, I didn't say this, but the other characteristic that comes that is integral to organisms is that because of that economy of scale, and if you, we, maybe we go into this a bit later, if necessary, um, it turns out that that explains why um, when you grow, you start growing quickly and then you stop. Right. You, you, um, and, and that's very important in biology and it's part of the long-term sustainability of the planet. Um, but, uh, and, and that stopping of growth, that cessation of growth is intimately related to economy of scale through the mathematics. And we can come back to that if necessary. So you can ask yourself, uh, what about cities? Um, are they similar? And I, I, I'm embarrassed to admit this, but I wrote in that original proposal that cities would be just like organisms, roughly, sure. which was wrong. Right. <laughs> Turns out it's wrong. It's partially right, but it's wrong. Uh, but, but the partial right is that if you look at, so, you know, if you ask a person, you know, about what a city is, right. The usual response is, well, you know, it's the place that got buildings and roads and uh, gas lines and all the rest. It's, you know, you usually think of a city in terms of its physicality. Mm -hmm. Eiffel Tower, uh, the skyscrapers of New York and, uh, and so on. Right. Um, and it is true that if you only think of the city in terms of its infrastructure, its physicality, then it is like us. It's incredibly like us. Mm -hmm. It has similar scaling laws, the, similar, the, the same kind of thing that if you double the size, you get an economy of scale. The only difference is that instead of having a 25% savings with sort of every approximate doubling, mm -hmm. you get only a 15%. Yeah. But you still get that same systematic behavior for all the phys physical characteristics of the city, the length of roads, length of electrical lines, uh, the number of gas stations, blah, blah, blah. All of that 
is looks like and and of course it's from this viewpoint from this paradigm that is all a reflection of the fact that a city as a physicality is a physical network obviously you know we, we travel them every day right. and we deliver deliver all our resources via network so right. in that sense it's not surprising so that's nice and the mathematics sort of reflects that I, I however want, that, uh, sorry, sorry, please. I want to make sure that everybody everybody's following where you're going here so like you take a, a city of a hundred thousand people yes and, and a city that's larger let's say a million um, is essentially more efficient more efficient in correct its road superstructure it will require less gas stations what, what else correct. like because um, there's there's other things too that uh, less it, less uh, all all infrastructure infrastructure is less Per capita, per capita, by so about fifteen percent. If you double every time, you double, you save about fifteen percent. Right. So collectively, the bigger the city, the better. In and, that and, sense. And so back to your to the analog with biological creatures, it's more efficient to distribute that energy to the periphery. Absolutely. I mean, I forget the numbers. For example, one way of describing this: if you took, let's go to biology for the moment. If you took um, uh, if you took a, the, the, the mass, the biomass of an elephant and you made it into whatever it is, you know, 100,000 mice to right. add up to that weight, um, they would use, I forget the numbers, but, you know, 100 times more energy. They'd have to eat 100 times more food a day. I don't, so, I'm making up those numbers. I don't have them at my fingertips. But it's and so it is with cities. Yeah, so that's directionally correct. So, so a Santa Fe, whatever size it is, fifty thousand, hundred thousand, is a less yeah. efficient place than a Cleveland, which in turn is a less correct. efficient than in New York City. Uh, and and so, from a um, from an energy consumption, it, it, let's say, for example, you're an environmentalist. The the what you would um, gather from your research is that it's more environmentally. Uh, from an energy Correct. consumption perspective, Correct. Uh, say um, it's better to live in New York than it is in a small town. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. The greenest city, the greenest city in North America, is New York City. Right. right. And and I live in one of the <laughs> less green cities. Even though, right. so this is not passing any judgment. No, no. About whether living in big cities is you know living in little nice cute little towns is uh, is is better or worse there's no judgment here it's just simply it is true you use more energy you have to use more energy to make the infrastructure and so on so that's the counterintuitive part but you also you also discovered something else there is more of some stuff in cities too why don't you talk yes so so that was the part uh, that i had right before all this that the city in that sense is quite analogous to biology but in what I think of and what one should think of as the truly essential part of a city, namely its people and therefore its socioeconomic activity, because the only point of having a city is socioeconomic activity. Um, that's my phone. I'm sorry, it's a landline. Sorry. Uh, is that um, uh, is the socioeconomic part. So. If you look at, as I said earlier, the the great thing about a city, with reason it's this fantastic invention, 
is that it facilitates social interaction. And so if you look at all the metrics that uh, reflect or measure social interaction or are a result of social interaction, uh, which is what we did, such as uh, wages, Mm -hmm. such as the number of patents produced, um, which is some proxy for the innovation, the, how innovative a city is. Sure. Uh, very current today, disease, trend, number of flu cases, for example, mm -hmm. uh, and now it would be the number of COVID-19 cases. If you look at um, any of these socioeconomic metrics, uh, then what you discover is something that you essentially never see in biology. That is, instead of an economy of scale, that is, the bigger you are, the less per capita, now we have the opposite. The bigger you are, the more per capita. The higher the wages per capita, the more innovation per capita, the more crime per capita, the more disease per capita. And what is amazing is that it has not just the same mathematical form as in biology, but that these uh, results, these observations, um, are true across the globe, mm -hmm. happens in all urban systems across the globe, and it happens to the same quantitative degree. Mm -hmm. And so that, um, so you have this extraordinary approximate universality that if you double the size of a city, that on the one hand, you save 15% on all the physicality, all of its infrastructure, yeah. but you gain 15% in all socioeconomic activity uh, and therefore in um, its wealth creation, its idea creation, but also in terms of the bad and the ugly, the crime and the disease, yeah. all increase, roughly speaking, by 15%. And we find that through uh, places where we could get data across the globe. Right. Uh, so that's, that's astounding. And so it, it, it begs a question that I'm about to ask shortly about companies. But, but another thing, another observation, too, I think that we need to go to is with, with creatures, they go through this sygmoidal growth that you talk. Yes. Growth, and then we, we level up, and then we, and then we die. Um, what about cities? Yes. Cities die. So... The, so cities, as I say, should be thought of as being dominated by their socioeconomic activity. And that socioeconomic activity and the origin of the scaling laws is inherently derived from the uh, social networks. That's the analog of the physical networks that we talked about in biology and the physical networks of the city. There is also this kind of virtual network of social interaction. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, which is, as I say, the, the essential feature of a city. And um, it is the, the mathematics of that, so, that social networks that is giving rise to these scaling laws. Right. So, um, and they give rise to this superlinear behavior. And you can sort of understand that because unlike in biology, so let me go back to biology again. But, Oh my goodness me, my phone would not stop ringing. Someone's, I wonder if I could turn it off. Sorry about this. Yeah. I, I can, is it okay if I continue yeah. with the ringing? Oh, okay, great. So, um, uh, the, these, um, these networks 
Um, I, I didn't say very much about these networks. They're the obvious ones, circulatory systems and respiratory systems and renal systems and so on. Um, but uh, they, the, part of the mathematics is of the infinite possibilities that the network structure could be, right. one of its characteristics is that it optimizes something. And in biology, it optimizes it well, optimizes in the sense that it minimizes the amount of energy. For example, for us, our hearts have to do to pump blood throughout the uh, the body to feed the cells. And that's one of the things that you have to put into mathematics mm -hmm. uh, to get these results, to get the quarter powers. Similarly, presumably, there are optimizations going on in a city. I mean, it may be that um, uh, the uh, transportation system you know, if you just average over space and time, has evolved for people to try to get from A to B as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. That's roughly. I mean, and indeed, when you when you do try to get from A to B, you don't take some arbitrary road like this. You try to get, you know, you know the efficient routes and right. you know the efficient routes on the buses, the trains, and so on. So, you know, there are these optimizations going on. And in social networks, mm -hmm. one of the things that is being optimized, uh, and because it's the very nature of social networks, is positive feedback, right. which is continually enhancing. So we have a group, A talks to B, B talks to C, C talks to D, D talks back to A, and we interact and we build on things. Now, most of those conversations go nowhere or they are you know they're about the football team or they're about uh, you know some sort of news in today but occasionally those conversations which are facilitated by the physical network of a city the urban bringing people together mm -hmm. those eventually uh, end up producing a a theory of relativity or quantum mechanics right. or a Microsoft or a Shopify. Mm -hmm. That's that's the engine that is doing that, but it's from this positive feedback. And the city is in some ways optimizing right. this social interaction. And so as a, as a, you know, another thing that maybe is coming out that it optimizes, you know, the, the, uh, the need for more. I mean, that seems to be built in, that we want more. Each person sort of wants higher wages, wants more cars, wants... I'm not saying that is, but that's, you know, the, there is this sense of optimization that is going on. And so that leads to super linear behavior, meaning the more people you bring together, this is the point, the more you bring together, the more those interactions are taking place, the more ideas are created, the more wealth is created, and that means the bigger you are, the more you get per capita. Right. And that's superlinear behavior. Okay. And that leads, instead of sigmoidal growth, now I'm going to your question, sigmoidal growth, it now leads to, instead of something growing and then stopping, it now leads to open-ended growth. Right. So yeah. the theory is very satisfying yeah. in that sense because you have this idea of networks, this idea that there is this inherent positive feedback in human interaction. Mm -hmm. um, positive feedback leads to superlinear scaling, and superlinear scaling leads to open-ended growth 
and we see both superlinear scaling and open-ended growth in in uh, in in the economy and in um, cities. And and you've made the point that it's you know even historically look at cities it's very difficult to kill one. Yes. So that's the other thing. The other thing we haven't talked about, but which actually got me into this, is that going along with this economy of scale, sigmoidal growth, meaning stops, um, uh, and uh, it goes, I'm so put it slightly differently. So the life history is <laughs> you have networks that, are, that optimize efficiency, that gives rise to economies of scale. Economies of scale give rise to the the growth stopping, yep. and it also gives rise to you die, right? And that's built into the theory. Right. Now, the complement to that is now for cities, economic systems. You have positive feedback gives rise to superlinear scaling. Right. Superlinear scaling is open-ended growth, and it doesn't look as if you're going to die if right. you can keep feeding the system. Right. Of course, there might be physical constraints, needless to say, and that is the huge challenge in the theory right. is to integrate that, that open-ended growth, that is these, the information exchange in social networks with the constraint that you have to be tied to something physical. Right. And the network isn't something up in cyberspace somewhere you know you have to be somewhere and that somewhere means that you're going to live in grungy places and get on the train and do this and do that you know so you got so the theory has to somehow tie those together right so let's we'll put a pin in physicality and we'll we'll, we'll come yes. back and talk about how important physicality yeah. is to wealth creation open-ended growth cities and a pandemic yeah. but before we do that let's let's go to companies because you know, if, if we're humans or giraffes, we grow, exhibit economies of scale, and then we die. If we are <laughs> cities, we see this super linear growth, this perpetual, potentially, wealth creation, and we do not die. As a, yeah. as a, as a corporate citizen, boy, I hope, I hope we're a city. So, yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> so tell me, tell me why, when we look at the data, that doesn't seem to be the case for most companies. No. So that was interesting because it surprised me again. I had not anticipated it. I just thought that companies, I knew very little about companies when I started this, um, I thought they would sort of mimic cities. They'd be some version of cities since they're social organizations. And when we looked at the data, we discovered, no, actually, they're more like organisms, if anything. Right. I mean, they have their own characteristics, but um, they did exhibit. They do exhibit scaling, mm -hmm. but there's a big caveat here, and that is that. Um, uh, and we did this, by the way, once we got the money to get the uh, data, and the data. What I'm going to tell you is primarily based on uh, U.S. Uh, publicly, public public uh, uh, public companies in the U.S. Mm -hmm. from about the mid fifties, I think, maybe uh, late fifties up to um, about two thousand fifteen. Yep. Uh, that's the data set. Uh, publicly traded companies. Uh, it just a side comment because I'll probably forget to say it. Amazingly, much of what I have to say is substantiated by Chinese data. Yep. Um, 
companies, which is amazing, publicly traded companies in China. Mm-hmm. And that's amazing because it, China has only been going for about 15 years. Right. But much of what I have to say is consistent with what is seen in Chinese. We have a Chinese collaborator in Beijing. But um, uh, the other, the, so that's the first caveat. The second caveat is that uh, the data is got huge variances in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's not surprising. I mean, after all, in biology, if I showed you a scaling graph in biology, the points are really, line, you know, the, the deviations are very small from the lines. Okay. If you look at cities, the deviations are bigger, but it's still very clear. Mm-hmm. Look at companies, there's lots of variance as you go up. But that's not surprising because companies have only been around, you know, mm-hmm. 10 years, 100 years, a couple hundred years max. Cities have been around hundreds, if not thousands of years. And life, biology, we've been around for not only hundreds of thousands, but in some cases millions, hundreds of millions of years. Time for the processes of evolution to take place, to to move more and more towards, quote, optimization. And in this paradigm, move closer and closer to the idealized scaling. Companies, of course, haven't. So there's so that's a big caveat. However, if you look at that data and you do statistical analyses on it, um, it's very clear that they have um, they satisfied scaling laws, these same same kind of scaling laws, and uh, but the companies are mildly sublinear, meaning they are dominated primarily by economies of scale. Uh, and um, Which, by the way, uh, is often can yeah. often be a good thing, right? The larger you get, the more efficient you are. Yes, more efficient. Not surprisingly, but, but that, but it seems to dominate it, right? And uh, so, and and one of the things that if you took this, you took that. So you said, look, okay, it's looking much more like organisms than it does like cities, and if you take the mathematics. Uh, that we had for that gave rise to sigmoidal growth mm-hmm. for organisms, and you apply that to companies, it would say yes. So well, the, the the life history of a company would be it would start quickly like a hockey stick, and then it would bend over mm-hmm. and flatten out. And of course, if you took it to the conclusion, if you just took that the, the analogous to organisms, then they die. Right. And indeed, that is what we see in the data. That is. When we plotted the data for growth of this data set, it's about, by the way, the data set's about 30,000 companies, uh, US publicly traded companies. You find that uh, the data is sigmoidal. That is, companies grow quickly and they flatten off. And and just one technical point, um, they actually, if you look at it carefully, uh, if you look at it by eye, it looks like it's flat, but actually, it pretty much tracks, not surprisingly, when you think about it, what it happens to companies, they simply track the GDP. Right. They just stay there and following the GDP if the, and, uh, and, and then they die. Like if the GDP is at a 3% growth rate, there's a certain fragility yes. because as soon as companies deviate, of course. that's the, when they... Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And that's why that goes to that question very much that if you cannot adjust to the externalities of the market and the sector you're in, mm-hmm. and you lose that, you sink below the waves of the GDP, 
and uh, you go under, and that is typically what has happened to most companies. So, uh, and we did look at the mortality of companies, and mortality of companies looks like organisms. Um, it's uh, you know, and in fact, the the uh, of that data set of U.S. publicly traded companies, the half life, meaning how long does it take for a cohort, half of the cohort, to die at any time, is about ten years. Yeah. So even after it's publicly traded, so that's not very long. Yeah. So my company's been publicly traded for about five years, meaning we're about we're we're middle aged as publicly traded. You're middle on that scale, yes, yeah. on that scale. Um, so anyways. But now I should also add another big caveat. Uh, I should have said earlier, um, the theory in biology is very well developed. Right. Uh, and we understand a lot of things in detail, things we haven't talked about here, sleep and cancer and aging and so on. Um, the work on cities is still very, the theory, I'm talking about the theory, the theoretical side, is still a work in progress. We understand a lot of it. But there are still things that, you know, we don't really understand where the 15% comes from, unlike the 25% for the, and the theory for companies is much less well understood. It's not developed well because, because we cannot get data on the internal structures of companies in generically, universal. That is, we know what us we know what animals look like on the inside. We know what cities look like on the inside, but we don't know really what company I mean have organization charts and so on. But we we don't know what are the nature of the social networks in right. quotes that really are the guts of a company. Right. And so just to you know to build uh, like what is analog in a company to sleep? or to cancer. To your point, what are what are the networks? And a hierarchical yeah. network will tell you something, but anyone who's had to navigate an organizational, an organization of any size will tell you the hierarchy, the the, the um, org chart is a particularly poor way to navigate. And yes. there are hidden social networks in, in which the company actually operates. And so, so just speculatively here, would you suggest that one of the things companies should do is actually figure out a way, given that networks are so are, are so such a primal concern in your thinking, should companies figure out what their actual internal social network is and begin at least to observe it? An emphatic yes, mm -hmm. capitalized. Mm -hmm. That would be my own view. And if I, I, I'll tell you a little story, which maybe I've told you before. I don't, I don't remember. But we in the when we were first developing the work on companies, um, we were approached by, I, I better not name the company, a major, a very major corporation, I would say, very major. And uh, they uh, said, look, you know, we're really intrigued by working biology. And we think, it was like a bit like this Dick Foster, we think this might have some usefulness for us to understand our company and so on. And they supported, they actually gave us some modest research support. And we sort of started work, we, you know, started trying to uh, use, work with them, not to solve their company's problems, but just sort of conceptually. And at some stage early on, I said, listen, one of the things we desperately need is not, you know, they gave us a lot of data on the history of the company, which was very useful, but because it was going to be a kind of case study. 
But they, I said, you know, one of the things that's fundamental to this is obviously these networks. And uh, I said, so it would be marvelous if we could get the, uh, st the structure of the company. That is, you know, what we would love is you can anonymize everything. What is the email traffic? Who's talking to whom? Uh, what are the phone calls? Uh, you know, what are the tweets? Well, tweets had, had not started at that stage, actually. But, you know, what are the various interactions so that we can put together the network and really see how the company works? And they said, uh, oh, boy, boy, never, never, Scott, I never thought of that kind of thing. That was the first thing. And they said, okay, let's see. Maybe we can do something. Well, we didn't hear anything. And then they got back to us very quickly after that, after we pushed them. And they said, well... We can't do that. The lawyers won't let us, of course. Mm -hmm. And we said, look, it makes, you know, we're going to completely anonymous. You don't know anything. And they said, well, look, if you publish this, our rivals, our, you know, our competitors will figure out who we are and how we are <laughs> and so on. That was the first thing. And then That's this it. went on for about a year. Just that comment, though, is, is a deep misunderstanding about the universality of your... Of course. Right? Of course. How they're working efficiently is how probably most people will be working efficiently. No, that's the point. You got it exactly. And I, we said this to them. I said, so the, the, then um, uh, uh, it must have taken, it took forever this, uh, pushing them hard. Then they said, I got an email one day. We, we're going to send you the, 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 the network. Mm -hmm. So we waited. And a few weeks later, we got it. Mm -hmm. You know what it was? It was the org chart. Right. Right. And I said, you must be kidding. I said, not only is this, we've already said this is sort of semi-useless because we, and not only that, I could have Googled right. on the web, got your bloody old chart. I didn't need to wait a year. Anyway, it was very, was very telling. And we've had several other experiences analogous to that. But given if you, given what we have learned in our, both in organisms and cities and what we've learned about companies mm -hmm. in order to really, first of all, just understand them in a, in a, you know, from an academic viewpoint, we need that. Mm -hmm. But yeah. then turning it inside out and saying, if I were running a company and I wanted to understand something about it, by God, I need to know where, well, who's talking to who, where the information is going, who are the nodes in the network? Who are these crucial elements? What if, if I took this out, what happens? Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's so powerful, potentially. Before I think I met you, I, I don't know if I have told you this, we, we did a very rudimentary uh, network analysis by asking questions of um, who talked to whom. There, there's better yeah. ways of doing it technically, especially these days when everyone's on Slack or email. You, could, you can track these. Yeah. Of course, the, the lawyers always will have problems with it. But we discovered something that won't be surprising to you at all, which was um, there was a, this department and the sort of lodestar, the, the key, you know, the key node in the network of that department was someone who left the department a year ago. But all of the edges in terms of who they actually talked to, uh, talked to touched on this node, right? So yeah. the, org, the org chart actually not only was wrong, it was dangerously wrong about who had the power and the influence in that department. Yes. Yeah, so. Exactly. No, that's the kind of thing I, 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 we were thinking of. And um, 
you know, it's um, the, the interesting thing about a company, I think, and talking to some others that are you know, run companies, is that, of course, a good leader intuitively sort of knows some of those things. Right. You know, I mean, you know, you know I mean, I'm sure, you know, but, but, you know, it's one thing intuitively knowing it. And, of course, some people are brilliant with their intuition and it works brilliantly. But in general, it's really good to be able to quantify it, to know it, sure. and to have it substantiated. And not only that, it's not unlikely, there's no guarantees, it's not unlikely little surprises will be revealed by oh. such an analysis. Uh, absolutely. Now, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you an example that, blew, that, that surprised me. So in cities, we have the same problem. Who is, you know, who's talking, you know, what, are the net, what actually are the networks? Mm -hmm. uh, great you know social scientists sociologists have spent years trying to figure this out and how do they do it they go around and traditionally they used to go around with uh, surveys and you ask people to fill them in how often do you meet with x and who you talk to and how often do you go to the store and all these kinds of things well that's so limited it's so time consuming and so on and you can only do it for a few places right along comes of course the cell phone and the smartphone Right. And suddenly you have a detector that tells you where everybody is and who's talking to whom and so on. Right. So one of the things that I really enjoyed was uh, teaming up with uh, some people at MIT who had access to the big data sets. Right. And to cut a long story short, we analyzed all the, you know, the, these big data sets of mobile phone interactions uh, so, and determined sort of the network structure. But one of the wonderful things that that substantiated was that if you ask, I mean, if you go back to the theory that this superlinearity, this 15% yep. uh, sort of value added with, with a doubling, uh, and, you, and, and the theory is that that comes from the increase of 15% every time you've done, that would be the hypothesis. And the cell phone data substantiated that almost precisely. It was, it was a very satisfying. But now, when it reveals just to make sure I'm following you, your, your theory should predict that if you're a New York cell phone user, you should talk to more people than if you're a Santa Fe cell phone user. Is that correct? Yeah. Much more. They do. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and that was very satisfying by, by what was predicted by the theory. So that was very satisfying. But here's something. Going to your uh, this, this point that it reveals something that you didn't suspect. Right. So we had this data and we looked at the network. We could also ask questions like, how many of your friends that you're part of this network, your network, are talking to each other? Right. You know, uh, so that's sort of part of your group. Right. And the theory doesn't predict what that should be. Right. It doesn't directly demand. But I thought, well, it's obviously going to be the same. It also will increase by 15%. No, it doesn't. It stays the same. Stays the so same. that your sort of modular grouping is the same whether you're in a small town or village or you're in New York or Toronto or somewhere. And that's what the data said. So it's almost as if what it is as if you go to a big city, you, of course, increase your contact and your social interactions. But in terms of the people that stay connected with each other in a group situation in terms of you know the analog to the family that number is the same as it is in the village you keep that 
village characteristic part of you, which right. is almost in our DNA. Right. And that was very that was a huge surprise to me. I was really surprised that it was just you know nice and flat from uh, you know a town of uh, the data I remember is Portugal which the, the smallest town that we looked at was 10,000 people, and it went all the way up to Lisbon, which is several million, and it was the same, basically the same number. And what was that number? Do you remember? Is it, a, is it in the... Well, I don't, the number in, I don't remember. The thing I do remember... No, I'm afraid I don't remember the number. Um, because I don't remember. But, but the thing I do remember, it was bigger in Portugal than it was in England, <laughs> not surprisingly, because the English don't talk to one another very much, and the Portuguese are much more right. voluble with each right. other. I mean, I, I spoke last week to David Sloan Wilson, and we were talking about uh, oh, yeah. sure. and, and, and tribes and, and the Dunbar number and, and some of these constraints sure. to be universal on group size. So, so that, that doesn't... Uh, yes. no, no, in fact, uh, Toby, one of the things that I've been very frustrated by is that I was sure that we could uh, derive the numbers, the actual number, the 15% and so on, from the Dunbar numbers, that right. somehow that was a reflection of the Dunbar numbers. Mm -hmm. And I've not been clever enough to do it. But I'm, that is one thing I'm determined to do. I've, it, it, I thought it was going to be simple. It turns out it wasn't. And there's, there's great implications uh, for that for, for companies, right? Like oh, what, for sure. Absolutely. Sizes of small teams, of meso teams, of macro teams, departments. So, um, no, oh. no, we had, by the way, just a side comment on that. It's, it's very important for the Santa Fe Institute because uh, we have what one of the things we've realized was that, uh, you know, we've often in the past, when times were <laughs> more plentiful, thought about its various people of pressure to say, well, why don't we double in size? You know, let's build another building, double in size, um, blah, blah, blah. And of course, there's been pushback from many of us saying, well, we'll destroy the very character of it and so on. But one of the things that became very apparent was that actually we operate at a Dunbar number of about, you know, 45 to 50 is about the maximum that you ever want to have around. Right. And often much better to have something like 15 and so on. Yeah. And that going to a huge number is going to destroy that. So we've, we've thought about that. You know, especially, you know, we're talking qualitatively about these connections, but think of there's probably some continuum you could plot. Um, sorry, quantitatively, there's probably some continu continuum you could plot the qualitative conversations. So, for example, you know, having strolled the halls of the Santa Fe Institute, I've noticed like there's relatively complex conversations, meaning there probably could probably needs to be fewer of those to have larger impact. Right. So Absolutely. there's. So your yes. numbers probably have to go smaller, but okay. So let's let's so that's so we've got a pretty good understanding of your science right now, and so let's apply it to this post-COVID new normal. Yes. <laughs> yes, we have this sense of the, the the city is this engine of creativity and a cre and an engine of wealth, um, but it's also a a, a cauldron of uh, disease. Uh, we so we know those two things to be true. But and we, we think they're true because of some inherent physicality of how networks manifest in cities. So, yeah. um, so talk us to through the new city post COVID nineteen. You know, like you're sitting in your study, I'm in my office. We're, we're not traveling. We're not you know we're not going out in the city. 
No one's going to an office. The streets are bare. What does that do for? And let's go. Let's go for the good things. The, this the, the sort of vibrancy and creativity and warmth that a city presents us. What happens now? Well, if it really stays like this, mm -hmm. and we do not have this, right? Let's come to that in a minute. So, had this been. Uh, you know, probably even 25 years ago, maybe even 10 years ago, I don't know, but certainly 100 years ago, and we had to do this and and do it for a very long period, of course it dies and the city would die. Uh, the lifeblood of a city is people talking to people, interacting with, pe with other people, exchanging information. And indeed, um, it's sort of, there's something, I don't know, ironic, about the fact that the very process that gives rise to the greatness of a city or to the um, success of a city, the, the product of a city, um, whether it's culture, business, finance, whatever, is, is the very thing that gives rise to the disease. Sure. So, uh, you know, and that's why, uh, so it's the same, it's the same, and just mathematically, just let me just say, it's the same equations. It's the interaction between people. So if you cut, if you cut the interaction, if you social distance, as it said, mm -hmm. as it's called, uh, as it's been named, if you cut that, of course you cut disease, and we have to do that to cut the transmission of disease. Mm -hmm. But uh, you, what you're doing at the same time, of course, is uh, cutting the the communication and therefore the generation of ideas and wealth and so on. So if you if there were no other form of communication uh, and you kept that up for a substantial period of time, the city would wither and uh, the system would collapse, of course. Right. Do, do you think there's an opportunity, though, I'm just thinking of the analog to sleep, which is potentially what we're doing with cities right now. Yes. We're taking this reprieve. Do, do you think that this could potentially be um, helpful for cities and our civilization? Very very good, very good. Yes, so I thought of this early on. I didn't think of a sleep, funnily enough. I thought of it, I thought of the following, was that, you know, if I get sick, yeah. and, I, and I've had a couple, few periods of my life where I got very ill, uh, pneumonia, and I was bedridden, it's clear what happens. You, you shut down, you shut down the system, and you go to bed, and, you know, you do as many, much palliative care as possible, and uh, and and built into that, built into that going to bed and shutting down is that you have enough resources and resilience mm. to last whatever it takes to repair the damage or to combat uh, the infection. And uh, we just take that for granted. I mean, that's integral to um, the way uh, our he healthcare systems have evolved to, to varying degrees, of course. Um, and uh, But uh, just to re-emphasize that, built into it is that we have enough capacity that has been stored uh, both in our own bodies, but also in whatever the, the support system is, in a kind of basal state rather mm -hmm. than the normal active state, so I can last a few days, the week, maybe up to a month in some cases. And um, uh, the, 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 so you, I thought about that at the beginning of this, and I thought, boy, I wish we could think of it that way, mm -hmm. that we 
And, and the question is, and we do have, we have the resources, actually. Obviously, we have the resources to go for several weeks, uh, maybe several months at, a, at a kind of, this kind of basal level. Mm-hmm. You know, if we actually thought about it that way, right. rather than the totally ad hoc way we do it, especially, I mean, in this country, in the United States, it's, it's been um, uh, just awful the way right. it's been dealt with. It could, uh, you know, I, it could easily. If you, I, sorry, go ahead. I'm no, sorry. I'm saying, but had you no, go ahead, Toby. Go ahead. Well, it, was, it could easily be presented as the pause that refreshes. Right. That's there. Yes. There are so many different analogies to hibernation or sleep or to of course, all of these. sleep. I, I mean, it could be any of these that does refresh and use it. But society, unlike at the individual level, where it's part of, of our life of our, you know, we, we plan, hopefully we don't get, it's not going to happen to us. We plan, uh, for the, uh, how to deal with, uh, when, uh, getting sick or ill or breaking a leg, you know, that you're going to shut it down for a while. And we know that's built into the system. And I know that when that happens, the first day that happens and I have to go to bed, I also now take it for granted that David Krakow, my boss, isn't going to call it up and say, Jeffrey, you're not at the Institute, you're fired, right. finished, right. and uh, or whatever, you know, and my body doesn't immediately shut down. I mean, the, the, the system has things in place that, uh, that, that, that keep the system going, knowing that it's going to refresh and so on. And by the way, uh, it's interesting you say refresh. I've been sick a few times, quite sick, but I've come back eventually done some of my best work yeah. <laughs> you know that period of anyway it's a, a period. And, and we, we need we need a civilizational notion of a fallow time yes absolutely and that's sorely missing and, and it's getting worse so in that sense it's uh it's been very disconcerting that uh, we especially in the united states is one of the worst cases of not uh, sort of having this metaphor in mind, whether it's um, illness or sleep and a downtime. Uh, and unlike, uh, I don't know what Canada did, but you know, in Europe, of course, they guarantee jobs effectively. I mean, uh, by giving 80% of your salary or whatever. In this country, we just furloughed people and that was it. And there was, and most, they didn't, they didn't get paid for many cases. And so we've had all these ad hoc kinds of ways of trying to deal with it, which are very unsatisfactory and going to lead to um, all sorts of terrible situations, I fear. Um, and, and, a, and, and that probably is a segue to some of the questions about what is the world going to look like when we return to, well, we won't, re- we're, what we would call normal, but it's obviously going to be a different state of the system than it is now. And that's very hard to judge, but, yeah. It will. And cities will, it will definitely affect cities. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I have a, a bunch of uh, questions here. Um, and so why don't we go through those and we can uh, see if we can uh, answer them. Let me just pull them up here, Jeffrey. Um, so here, here's a question. Despite many, many similarities, organizations such as businesses don't share the same scaling laws and seem to lack the resilience and adaptability of cities. What's your current thinking about what lies behind this difference? 
Is there any hope for organizations that want it on the super linear scaling that cities enjoy? So you, you and I touched on this, but yes, we've touched on this. But, 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 and uh, yes, no, no, this is a this is a actually it was this question not put in quite so articulately as that, that originally got me into thinking about cities and companies because I was I became immediately intrigued after the biology work. Why is it that um, almost all, all, you know, essentially all companies eventually disappear? Let's use the word disappear. Uh, they, they may get uh, bought up and so on. But it's a word in the literature I've discovered and just uh, is you. They, Jeffrey, for, for folks who are listening, I, I think you also have mergers and acquisitions and bankruptcies yes. as part of the end of end of yes. yeah yeah so just to put that yeah so we looked at uh, uh, it turns out in the literature uh, birth is usually defined as when a company starts posting uh, something on the uh, post prop. Post sales, I think it is actually post sales, and death is when it's no longer has sales or is no longer posted on the stock market. Um, uh, so it, that, of course, it may be in that sense, death could either be death like a biology, it liquidates or goes bankrupt, uh, or it's something, or the other thing is it gets acquired or merges. But those are considered when the name disappears in the sense I described. That is, that's so okay. we did it that way, and we analyzed data with those. We and and just to, I'm not going to come back to this probably. We found actually it was no different. It turns out it whether you looked at the those that were acquired or merged or those that actually died, the data said pretty much the same thing. And um, even though individual cases may deviate, of course, but the. Um, so, you know, there's a fundamental difference, of course, right off the bat about a company from, from a city, because a company, of course, has to uh, make a profit, ultimately. Mm -hmm. um, so there's, a, there's an inevitable profit motive, uh, otherwise it won't survive long term. Uh, and the city doesn't have to do that. Right. The other thing is that, um, uh, there's a completely different culture, of course, in a company. Usually, I'm just talking about, yeah. I, you know, generally here, in a in a company than in a city. Um, first of all, a company is invariably top down. It has a strong management, uh, an organ. We talked about that earlier, and uh, you know, people have very explicit jobs to do, uh, uh, etc. Cities are not that way. They're not top down. Uh, there, of course, there are mayors and administrations, but a really good mayor and a good administration administration facilitates interaction. I mean, that's of course what leadership in a company should do as well. But in a city, that's its job is to provide things to facilitate. Can I can I dig into that a little bit because we've used yeah, please. As a, as a canonical example, like a tree is or arteries, right? And and those yes. are both branching hierarchical networks. Uh, that's what right. that's what an org chart is. Um, so is there something? There's maybe nothing wrong with how it's structured, but is you, is as you're suggesting something wrong with how it's performing? Like it's not actually doing yes. the democratic um, diffusion of energy to its extremities. That that that's sort right. of the of what you're suggesting is yes that's sort of the idea and that's why going back to what we said earlier knowing what the real network is 
mm-hmm. to see how that's performing is crucial, mm-hmm. you know, uh, for a company. I think I think or, would be crucial. Or even or even if you could expedite and make more efficient the actual distribution of whatever it is to the extremity of the company through the sure. hierarchical network. That would be too. Sure. sure. So, by the way, so one of the things, you know, this, the work on companies is more recent and it was, it's very much a work in progress. But again, just a tangential comment to that. Uh, one of the things that we're working on, uh, we have a small collaboration going, um, and that is um, trying to understand bureaucracy and administration. Mm-hmm. And the, you know, I like to start my research with a question. Right. And the question came about, from the continual bitching that I and many others have about any organization, but of course, usually the government, but often organizations, that the bureaucracy takes over everything. You know, there's too many bureaucrats and they're stifling uh, creativity and all the rest of it, you know, and uh, it's hopeless. And indeed, of course, some of that is no doubt true, but they brought up the question, how big should a bureaucracy be? Is there, you know, when you say it's too big, that means you have in mind some idea of how big it should be for the size and functionality of an organization. Mm-hmm. So we started to ask, can you actually have a rational scientific basis for understanding the appropriate size of control mechanisms in general? Mm-hmm. That is uh, bureaucracy, uh, administration in the sense of a company, mayors and administration in the city, the federal bureaucracy, universities. We did a lot of work with universities trying to understand, but also inside cells, inside your body. Right. How much, you know, so those, it was sort of very general and we've, we've been having a lot of fun trying to understand that. Was there a regulatory system in the human body that you used as an analog for no, we mostly use cells, regulatory genes. The, the question of the number of regulatory genes, what they're interacting with, uh, as you change the size of the system, how do they change, and so on. Because they're much simpler, and people have done a lot of work in recent years on trying to extract uh, mechanism as well as the uh, quantitative data on the role of regulatory genes in terms of controlling cellular behavior. So, um, but uh, we've done it for others, you know, we find, by the way, just a side comment, rough, very roughly speaking, federal bureaucracy, now this is just the United States again, um, federal bureaucracies and private sector bureaucracies are not that different. In fact, as you get bigger, federal bureaucracies tend to be better. It's the small size when you're small. Anyway, that's the details. Yeah, this is worked. I should and never you come, up with, any of this. you come up with a universal scaling number, like a three quarters. No, 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 not yet. No, no. We have this. No, I, I'd be reluctant to actually mm-hmm. make any statement, even in this circumstance. Yeah. But anyway, going back to um, the company's difference. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that is very different about that that follows from this you know, the different, uh, the categorically different kinds of organizations, social organizations, is that, you know, in a company, and I'm going to, again, just paint a idealized picture. Typically, a company begins with a small number of people. 
kind of back garage image with lots of ideas, lots of excitement. And, uh, you know, they have, and then they start to put things together. They produce a product. They produce a spectrum of products. Uh, and they're out there in the market. And there's, uh, you know, certain, certain of those products really take off. Right. And the company starts to grow, goes from, you know, a dozen people to 20 to 50 to 100, growing very quickly. But somewhere along that line, probably beginning at 20 or so, you need to have a bureaucracy. So, Because at the beginning, you don't get shit about, okay, we'll take care of the sweeping the floors and the taxes and making sure we're obeying, you know, the rules of safety and so on. But, you know, we do that. But, you know, that's who gives a shit for the time being. This is too exciting, too, too much. And, but eventually, you have to have that and you have to obey the law. And so you form a bureaucracy. And then, of course, the company gets to a size where you have to form your own laws. It's not just the laws from the outside that the federal government or the state is imposing on you. But, you know, something goes wrong, so you impose your own. Mm-hmm. And then gradually, more and more of these happen. Right. And so the idea is the classic image that eventually the innovation is completely swallowed up and overwhelmed by the necessity of having a bureaucratic system controlling things. And not only that, the the other thing that happens concurrent with that is that the dimensionality of the system changes in the sense that you have a, when you start, you have maybe a spectrum of products, a spectrum of ideas. You have to respond to the market. Even the ideas that you think are best, the products you think are best are not selling. Ditch them. You go to the thing. And gradually the dimensionality gets smaller and smaller and you get locked in. And then you run into the problem we talked about earlier. You lose diversity in that sense. And when the externalities change, you cannot change with it. I mean, that, that seems like, to me at least, it seems like a historical contingency that's accidental. The fact that you've observed that in most places, that doesn't seem to be a, a lock solid law. And the reason I say that is because no. as companies get bigger, I, <clears throat> you should be able to have a, a more flourishing pointy end of the stick. You should have more ideas. You should absolutely. have more ideas. Absolutely. That, which is what cities do. Right. I mean, that's what cities do. The bigger they are, the more ideas, the more. So. And um, a company needs to, you know, in answer to that question, if you want to get more super linear, meaning coming more like a city, you need then to have some aspect of the company which is more city-like in the sense that it encourages a sort of wild atmosphere of thinkers and so on. So, so you know, the classic example in the United States, and I think it was much more general than that, was in the eight, you know, Ford Motor Company had a great research and development band, had a, was, you know, was doing basic research and so on, and allowed ideas to flourish. And of course, the greatest of them all was Bell Labs, right. which was just extraordinary. And of course, you know, when things get tough, one of the first things such organizations do is say, look, mm-hmm. this is, we're in tough times. These are not productive. It, we, we have real problems in the next 12 months, two years. We're going to c- c- contract our research, uh, especially our basic research. That's, you know, that's kind of five, 10, 20 years. We get rid of that. 
and we'll build it up afterwards. Mm-hmm. And of course, typically that never happens. And uh, those companies become eventually moribund. So let's let's which, is, which happened to them. Yeah, no, you're right, and that is that is typical. Let's let's attack that idea for a second because there's something you said right at the beginning that I wanted to unpack, and I didn't get this opportunity, and it, and it touches on complexity itself. And this was um, this scaling law was known in biology from the 30s, and then of course along came Watson and Crick, the DNA, and a, a rush to reductionism in biology for really good reasons because we learned tons. And it was very yeah, absolutely. But we, we lost a sense of, of the holistic understanding of the whole. And, you know, one of the things that we see repeated in the 20th century is, is this rush to reductionism and this ignorance of complexity and, and holistic understanding of the whole. And, and that, in fact, the, the history of the Santa Fe Institute is to try to bring back some of that broader, broader thinking. Um, and so it doesn't surprise me that you see this exact same trends happen in business, right? Like Bell Labs should have Bell Labs should have had a much more longer term understanding of what they were doing yeah. and said we must yeah. like R and D is not some vestigial limb here that we can cut off and this creature lives. It's actually, you know, equivalent to a, a main branch of the aorta or yeah. something. Right? There's so maybe talk about maybe maybe if if you don't mind this is probably where we should have started like complexity. It seems like in my conversations with folks at the Santa Fe Institute, no one really wants to define complexity. It, <laughs> you know, yeah. I don't know if it was just Wendell Holmes or someone. It probably wasn't him, but it, yeah. I think he was commenting on pornography. Like he can't define yeah. it, but he knows it when he sees it. I, I always get answers like that from Santa Fe folks, but, but maybe, right. but talk to me like, Complexity versus reductionism. Why should we care about complexity? Maybe if you if you wouldn't mind going there for a bit. Sure. By the way, it was Potter Stewart that Potter. made yeah. that remark. Yeah. About pornography. Uh, but um, uh, yes. Yeah, so uh, I think we care about complexity because the world is complex. I mean, this is very, (laughs) I got a simple answer to a complex question, but because the world is messy. Yeah. The world is a messy place. Uh, The great thing about reductionism is uh, the thing that excited me about becoming a physicist and a scientist was reductionism, was reducing things to their elementary pieces and trying to find the universal laws that they obey. And um, that was a paradigm begun with Newton, basically. And it's been enormously successful. I mean, it's maybe I I consider the most powerful way that human beings have found to think about, you know, the world around us, the universe and so on. And it's it's extraordinary. And it has led uh, 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 spin-offs to the extraordinary technological world that we have, and mm-hmm. therefore to the kind of quality and standard of life that many of us right. uh, enjoy. So it's been enormously successful. Um, however, it leads to um, a way of thinking, which I used to have, mm-hmm. and that was that, um, you know, if you want to understand um, uh, the weather, 
-hmm. or you understand the economy or you understand life biology well you know that's just grinding out these equations you know we have the fundamental equations uh of the of the elementary particles and it's just techn um, um, a technical a technical challenge to go from those to understanding how life began and then we have, once we have life began we know how societies formed and from societies formed we know how economies formed and so on so there was this sort of very simplistic idea that again a tree mm -hmm. uh the branches out but it's all a nice linear connection and so and and sorry, Jeffrey, like just, you know, you say, oh, that was the idea. But I, I mean, I would argue that's still, that's still yes. the vast majority exactly. of people's, that's their epistemology, right? They're, they're Absolutely. Produced. I, I don't know if you recall, you, you had a, you had a, I, I thought a particularly unsatisfactory conversation about this specifically with um, Sam Harris and, and the conversation. Yeah. I'm a huge fan of Sam, and, and he's, he's, he does yeah. good work. But in this case, and, and he is very much a reductionist and, and posited just such a Laplace's demon that if you could figure it out, yeah. the tree makes sense. Right. And, and I felt like you sort of talked past one another because, because, because yeah. of course, I mean, you're, you're, you're a physicist. You believe in the parsimonious laws of how the universe works. It's just it, there, there are – there are levels or states where some things are are described best, and in fact, you know, I guess I guess the question I'm really interested in you in asking you is reductionism fundamentally does it can it exist can can you understand how cities work by looking at atoms and is it just a data crunching problem or is it just or is it just an absurd thing to say like no you can't actually understand that because it's impossible well. Two things. First, you mentioned the Sam Harris podcast. That was very unsatisfactory. I was. I didn't realize. Actually, it, oh, I, I, I was. I was incredibly naive by not realizing what his philosophical viewpoint was. Right. And it was only towards the end that I began to realize that I had taken for granted that he was more you know, holistically thinking, systemically, than he wasn't. Yeah. And I realized that that was an opportunity lost. And I, I'm, not, I, I'm not slating Sam because I, th I think Sam's- No, it's great. He's great. He's fantastic. He is fantastic. But, but I, I, I think that that was part, that was at, uh, at least equally my problem of not recognizing that and sort of honing in on that and saying, look, let's really get to this. Uh, that would have been very helpful, and I, I, it took me. It was just too late by the time I realized where we had gone, and we were, as you say, as almost talking past one another. Because you both sort of said, "Yay, physics," and then you said, "But complexity works this way," and and he got he had yeah, a right. yay physics. That you, so, but but tell us, like, so you know, I, in answer to your question, then yeah. the answer is no. I mean, no, it doesn't I mean the the fundamental laws of physics. I mean the the the. the the laws of the elementary particles, quarks and gluons, or even protons and neutrons, or even atoms and molecules, have virtually nothing to do with understanding a city. The nearest they get to it maybe is in terms of pollution, because pollution is <laughs> molecules in the atmosphere. But that's about as close as you get. But otherwise, you don't need to know any of that stuff. And uh, 
you know, it's it, it, because one of the things that uh, that we've recognized and and physics recognizes this. So it's kind of surprising that physicists aren't more open to seeing that um, you know you don't need to know you know it isn't just some simple building up, and that is that we have different levels that uh, that the what we call the degrees of freedom, the basic variables at any one level, even though they they are in some sense derived from the underlying level, you don't need to know the underlying level. Level and we often use the phrase "effective degrees of freedom" or "effective theory" to connote that idea. So a city doesn't need to know um, about the city does not need to know how my circulatory system works, even. And and just to uh, just to put a, a finer point on it, make sure I'm understanding you perfectly, Jeffrey. It's not just like you can get by with ignorance; like you don't need to know. But no. your point is even knowing isn't helpful to understanding. No, not helpful. No. Now, it, at the level of the circulatory system is sort of the, where the, the borderline mm -hmm. because, uh, because um, that's to do with metabolism and certainly the metabolism of the individuals that make up a city obviously play a role ultimately in by how the city functions. It determines how much food is needed to bring brought into the city and so on. So, you know, so there is a level at which you need to begin and, and it's a matter of judgment in terms of what is the question you're asking, uh, of course, about a city. As I said, if you're asking about, you know, if you're asking about transportation of food to the city, well, it's probably good to know a little bit about metabolism of individuals, but you know, asking a question about uh, probably about should we develop this area in the city? Should we, um, you know, renovate this building or whatever, or should we change this neighborhood? Well, that's not it's it's pro pro almost certainly not relevant. So there's a judgment call at some level, but it's very clear. That you don't need to, you, you do not need to go down reducing levels. In fact, it's counterproductive. It's it's counterproductive, and you know the reason why I'm so interested in this question is, you know, I, I think Sam Harris is quite typical in this that highly educated people have a tendency in our current culture and civilization to be reductionist, and so to understand yes. companies, people take an, a reductionist lens. And, and I think not only is it, it it's not helpful, it's it's aggressively unhelpful, right? And so the, you know, I feel like if you want to understand companies and, and their surrounding societies, you actually must take a complex view. And because that that worldview is in such, um, it, it's just not overly prescribed that worldview. Therefore, there's yeah. so much more we can learn. So if your job is to, if your job is to make companies or societies prosper you're probably looking in the wrong direction if you're looking in a reductionist per perspective. So yeah. that's, that's my just, bonnet Let here. me just add, I want to just add one thing to what you say, because I'd like to amend it slightly. Um, it's, you know, um, so for me to think about the human body or about animals, mm -hmm. I have to reduce it right. to the cells. Cell, you know, so that's, again, going to, you know, but I don't, really need to know about the molecules of the respiratory complex that is producing ATP. Right. But 
There is some level at which you do need to reduce it, but then you need to think, think systemically about the whole thing and are all the various parts interacting with each other. And also there's the question of how much when I'm thinking about the body, do I need to know about the externalities, that these bodies are not isolated, they're interacting with other bodies and they right. form a social system. So at both ends, ironically, you need to have put some kind of cutoff to, right. to get a deep understanding. Right. And, and at the level of abstraction that you're talking about, the societies or humans, you need a different toolkit. That's that's the real... Yes, absolutely. And, and the absolutely. has been instrumental in providing the world that toolkit. And for me, there's yeah. so much more to learn from a from a corporate organizational perspective, because it, there just has not been enough work in that space. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Let's, we can take another question or two here. Uh, here's just an interesting one. Uh, um, have you studied human communities of interest that are not companies or cities? I'm thinking of social networks me, um, mediated by the internet, uh, like fan websites or hobby groups. These look a bit like companies, but also a bit like cities. It'd be interesting to see yeah. how they scale. Have, have you ever looked at that, Jeffrey? Well, um, I, you know, there are people that look at this much more than I do, um, uh, you know, especially now, um, you know, even the, um, uh, the, the social media companies, of course, do this uh, because they're interested, interested in what are the communities and societies that they serve and uh, what are their dynamics and so on. So there is some of that certainly going on. Um, uh, so I, I, I've done very little of it. It's not been, I mean, it, I, I've worked on a little bit with it, but, and in fact, uh, um, <laughs> did you ever come across something called Second Life? Yeah, something called Second I, Life? I know of it, but I... Uh, uh, well, at some stage it was, it was, people were saying it's going to be as big as Google. Right. And uh, because it had, you know, you project it onto the screen right. and then onto the whole cyberspace, a society. Right. And it was, and they created place and uh, you could buy things and you had a currency. I think it still exists. Yes. And um, it so happened that uh, the person that uh, whose brainchild this was yeah. uh, had at some time taken a course from me right. back so some in the deep past and had been in touch with me at some stage and I didn't even realize. And then we started talking and I said, you know, it would be fascinating to take this second life, this society, which has cities and commerce and all the rest of it that, uh, that, that is a reflection of our own society, except it's not constrained in quite the same way by having to build buildings. You do build buildings in Second Life, but it's a different system. So I thought this would be fantastic to kind of test out our ideas. And uh, we, he was very keen. And uh, we started to work on that. And um, two things got in the way. One was it turned out first, it turned out to be a major challenge to translate all the data they had right. into a language that we could use for doing science. Right. And secondly, of course, the lawyers came in. 
<laughs> and the lawyers pretty much put a stop to it. It yeah. sort of shut us down for a year when we tried to do it. It was terrible. And then and then by the time we sort of got it organized, we even had a postdoc involved working on it. Uh, and they were going to go out and live in San Francisco and work with them. Uh, by the time it resurrected, uh, the um, Second Life was fading. I think it still exists, actually. Uh, Linden, Lindens, that's what they're yeah. called, Lindens, I think. The currency, anyway. Okay. So okay. I did some, well, just, we, see, just one last point. The other work that we've done is look at uh, the, the, in, the uh, contribution or the involvement of social networks as a function of real city size you know, to see what the traffic, and, and that obeys these laws, actually, which was sort of interesting. Right, right. And just, I just want to come to, sorry, Jeffrey. I was saying, I just want to come to oh, defense of, yeah, sorry, I, I think I'm back. I just want to come to defense yeah. of our own legal team, because uh, I think we are doing some basic <laughs> with SFI, and it's easy to, to figure that out. Yeah. But, no, but, that's but, great. Because of Second Life. And you know, here you and I are having this social connection mediated by technology. And we talked about post COVID, there's a physicality to this sort of rubbing yes. along that is the genius of cities. Um, can technology supplant that? Like can can we actually get all of the good without this deep sleep through technology? Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I've gone back and forth on this one because um, one of the things that uh, the uh, the work on cities and social organizations led us to, led me to in particular, was uh, the whole question of are they sustainable? Yep. Uh, this open-ended growth, is it sustainable? And one of the things that led, uh, the work led me to was the idea that the only way you can sustain uh, is by this, this super linear kind of behavior is by continuous reinvention. And then the, the problem came that, yes, you could do that, but every time you reinvent, every time you innovate, hmm. um, yes, you're doing that, you're resetting the clock so you can start over again. But um, the problem was that it came back and hit you uh, through the mechanism that you had to reinvent or to innovate faster and faster. And mm -hmm. all the data supports that in, in a quantitative way. And I thought, my God, uh, this means that the entire system, the, the, it's one of these great ironies again, the very thing that gives us all the great successes has built into it because of this superlinear behavior, built into it its own demise, that you right. simply can't keep up with it. So, um, uh, then, as I was thinking about this and wrote about it, I realized, gee whiz, maybe by some marvelous serendipitous accident, we found a way out because we invented the internet and IT. And uh, because it does relieve us of um, the necessity of being, roughly speaking, in the same place at the same time in order to make things happen. I mean, that's traditionally, that's what cities did, as I said earlier. But now we don't look at us. We can do it, and now we, we're doing all these Zoom things and so on and so forth. And, uh, and so I thought, gee whiz, that is the way out. 
and uh, but and in fact, uh, you know, you, you I kept getting interviewed about well, is the city going to die because now people don't need to live in the city, and uh, you you know you can do it. so. So here's my answer to that first, that thing don't need to in the city. So why is it that Larry Page and Sergey Brin and Jeff Bezos and all the rest of you guys don't live on the top of a mountain somewhere, the top of some beautiful mountain, uh, you know, and so on? You don't. You live in cities. I don't know. You live in a small town, relative, but you live near a big city. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, we they don't. And in fact... Silicon Valley has gone exactly the opposite direction. It was suburban. It was horribly suburban, by the way, because I know that area very well. Uh, but it was, it was quintessentially suburban. And what is happening is that they're now, all those suburbanites in Silicon Valley are moving into San Francisco uh, and taking over San Francisco. Uh, and from many points of view, destroying San Francisco, but that's another issue. I mean, <laughs> uh, that's a cultural issue. But the point is that in, instead of what you might have thought, that because of this, we don't need to be physically together, we don't need to be physically in a place, we could all disperse and live on a lake next to a lake or up in the country and on the top of a mountain. Quite the contrary. Everybody is still sucked into the city, attracted to the city. So, and so I, sorry, I go don't ahead. think, so what I concluded from that was that yes, cities have, it's almost now in our DNA that we need to be physically near people. We need to viscerally do it. What we're doing now is fantastic, but it ain't the same. Right. This, it's two dimensional, it lacks soul, it lacks something very special, and it lacks the four-dimensionality of real life. Namely, the third dimension, I can see all your twitches, I can inter you know, physically smell you, potentially, I can yeah. touch you, yeah. uh, and time is taking place. Here it's sort of timeless. And it's, so <laughs> I have reversed myself. I don't think that's this. I think we still need cities in that sense. I, I, so our listeners who know we're approaching hour two may not think we're timeless, but but there we are. Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> I, I do have a I do have a uh, some thoughts on this though, Jeffrey, and I, I actually think there will be a fundamental change of how we approach cities. I think you're right. I think oh. they're in our DNA, uh, but I think one of the things, if yeah. you look at history and you look at the great plagues of Rome, uh, yes. which then precipitated sort of villa living as the as the uh, yeah. that moved out. You see the same thing in Venice. You know, you you read, uh, you know, with the great the the Black Death and the, um, yeah, sure. you 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 read uh, Boccaccio's The Decameron, and and that was very typical. Sure. Venetians going out to to now the new villas. In you know, not a plague so much, but um, Victorian London in the time of cholera and the great English country house. Yeah. Um, and, and I think now th those were those were very upper class people, but I think you're now going to see more and more people down into the middle class going to employing what I call a hub and spoke relationship yes. with cities. And you're going to see companies do it because you and I, given the work we do, we can do it right here. There's sure. all the downsides you have said, you know, no touching or smelling, although arguably uh, a, 
not entirely a downside, depending on your company. But but you'll hub and spoke, and I actually think Santa Fe Institute does this really well. Absolutely, Santa Fe is a difficult place to get to. It's like a tertiary city. Coming there is a type of pilgrimage. You get there, and there is this lovely uh, three-day cocktail party. Well, at least every time I go there, there is there maybe. And, and there's all those accidental meetings with interesting people, right? And so I actually think more of the world is going to adopt this sort of fractal Santa Fe-style community of hub and spoke. And, and potentially get all the benefits of this mountain and lake living you're talking about, but all the, the creativity, the flourishing, and the wealth creation, the ingenuity that cities provide as well. Yes, no, I completely agree with that. I, uh, I, I didn't mean to imply that, uh, you know, the city is going to be, you know, everything's going to be concentrated, quite the contrary. And in fact, the COVID-19, of course, uh, uh, accelerates that. Right. But, uh, so, so it's this, this there, there'll be, so the city will, so the point is, the city will still be a major hub, a major center. It will still be vibrant, but there, it will be, it, there'll be something Yet to, yet to evolve that is not quite suburb, mm-hmm. it's not quite city, and it's not quite country living. Mm-hmm. But there will be, these things will be more developing. And um, the, the, because one of the things, you know, in the 19th century, the turn of the, to the 20th century, there was, of course, the, the great invention of the garden city, mm-hmm. and uh, which gave rise to suburbia. That's what suburbia comes from, from... Uh, the uh, this this idea of a garden city highly planned highly structured separating work from uh, play, play and so on and that uh it turned out to be whoops it says automatically leaving uh, yep i'm still here i have to press um i it uh i have to, it it um uh that that was soulless the right. way it was built it was conceived and built. And what we will have is some analog to that that maintains soul, in quotes, by still keeping the vibrancy of the more traditional city, but having many more aspects of the garden city without it sort of uh, deconstructing into the the images of suburbia that we have. My, my suspicion is there will be um, a, an exurban... So exurbia, so outside the suburbs living, yes, and right. that more or less village living, and there'll be urban living uh, that will be more village living as well. And you'll yeah. see, yeah. And, and the and the unsaid the unsaid thing here, of course, is as we talk about a class of people who can make their living with this computer and, and our minds. Yes. We are we are purposely, whether we're admitting it or not, leaving behind another class of people to the city. We're saying that when pandemics come, exactly. you are going to have to suffer because we are going to go off to the villa here. And that Absolutely. will the problems. No, so there's, I, I think it's fraught with problems of inequality and class and so forth. And how we deal with those, I don't know, because they're, they're huge. And the other thing that it brings up is the whole question of transport. How are we going to make this happen in terms of transportation and uh, the all the consequences that that has. So, well, there's a lot there. There's a huge amount we could talk about there, yeah. but I, uh, 
I guess we're near the end. I guess we're, <laughs> we could, um, yeah. Do you have, uh, so I have, I, there's a bunch of other questions, but they, they all ask sort of the same thing, which is, do you have any recommendations? I know that's a dangerous thing to ask a physicist. Do you have any practical yeah. recommendations, Dr. West, about what? <laughs> <laughs> you mean for, uh, for cities or just generally? Well, I, I think the question is to be asked as, as citizens of cities and of and of uh, as organizational people. You know, we all all of us belong to organizations. What what can we do? What can we do better by and, and that your boy that's, helps us understand. Uh, it's very hard. That's a very hard question, of course, to answer. I mean, there are things that we've already touched on, like uh, which are very practical, maybe, but things like. Um, you know, in order to, uh, you know, the, the nature of companies, for example, um, I think uh, I've already said just one practical thing about the uh, understanding the real network. What is the social network of a company? But that also begs the question, what is a company for? Right. And, uh, you know, a company is, of course, the efficient mechanism that society has developed to distribute goods made by artisans. I mean, that was sort of the its origins. And then in some ways, it still is that, except it's, it's scaled up tremendously. But I think uh, to bring in something we did not discuss with companies, which is outside of our work, but uh, is that I, I one sees the role of companies themselves changing. And I'm sure Spotify thinks about this. And that's uh, one of the better word, the platitude of social responsibility that uh, you know, you're not just there to make profits, but you're there to be like a city is in a way, I, had, I would a little bit, that you're facilitating things in people's lives. And uh, you have a certain responsibility in doing that. You don't just make things to make a profit, but you need to think through uh, what is this doing for uh, you know, the citizenry, so to speak, and in terms of uh, maintaining social cohesion, sense of worth, uh, and so forth. So, you know, interestingly, I, I, I don't think you get there by being an altruist. I think you get there by understanding how ecosystems work, how, how yeah. complexity works, and how all things are interconnected through networks. Yes. I, I don't think no. you, And I think you go the other way to pure profit-seeking through, you know, you end up with sort of a Friedman-esque, um, shareholder theory through actually a reductionist epistemology, right? No, it's, it's no. so. So the, no. the your fundamental your starting point of of your foundation of how you think the world works is actually is really important in terms of it, the moral decisions that you end up with. Absolutely, no. In fact, I was going to say about that that you know instead of seeing you know, a company with a big box around it, rigid walls, so to speak, <laughs> and then these things connecting it to uh, consumers. Right. Uh, and uh, is um, seeing it much more as part of the system. So it is a very much a complex system viewpoint that you are part of a system. And, uh, you know, um, and, and so, and in fact, you know, you're trying to maximize profits is actually part of that system, 
But And so thinking of social responsibility in that sense, social responsibility meaning that you understand that you are connected to all these various aspects mm -hmm. uh, of society um, that um, uh, in no way is antithetical, obviously, to making profits or to being a, uh, or to being a capitalist, Actually, obviously. I think there's an economic model that is emerging. Uh, you know, I haven't seen it actually fully given birth to, but this whole idea of uh, stakeholder theory that the, instead of map, yeah. you say like this hermetically sealed box, it is actually a network and it's nodes. And That's the more right. companies are touching more nodes while giving more benefits and taxing more lightly. Right. And, and, and in that sure. environment where you can be a highly profitable and successful company, but the measurable good that you're also doing, right? And again, yeah. that's not altruism. I think that's a better holistic understanding of how economies work. Sure. And um, I think, you know, this, this, the, the, the obvious cases of social media companies mm -hmm. yep. where they clearly, you know, that you cannot sort of put a box around Facebook uh, or Google, um, you know, with rigid walls and, and not see that, uh, you know, it's, it's part of the whole, as you say, ecosystem the whole socioeconomic ecosystem and and the company needs to recognize that and mm -hmm. act accordingly you know right. part of its, part of Again, its culture I think, its uh, culture needs to be it needs to be part right. of its culture and i and i think also an understanding of like you know how humans interact socially how we're tribal creatures all yeah. of that thinking the Santa Fe Institute has helped, would have helped Absolutely. some of these companies not make these missteps. I mean, to think of it systemically, I was thinking one of the things that I uh, thought about uh, during the uh, COVID-19 thing, which is sort of related to this, but thinking systemically, is that, uh, uh, you know, it's, <laughs> and to see the complexity viewpoint and the adaptive, the complex adaptive system, system viewpoint is to think of COVID-19 and to recognize that some arbitrary accidental mutation in a virus in a city in China right. led to the, led to canceling of football games in Spain, right. that led to less pollution in Delhi that led right. to me having trouble getting flour and yeast right. to make my bread, which I love to do. It's the and ultimate. So on and so forth. Yeah. It's the ultimate butterfly effect is what I call it. Yeah. Um, and that is sister. And, and, and in that sense, we should not have been surprised. I mean, right. you know, if you had that bigger view, right. uh, but it's kind of amazing things that seem to have no connection. Yeah, uh, that are, are, have incredible con strong connection, and they have it, and and not only that, it all happened within a couple of months. Right, right. So, yeah. and that that also goes to what you said earlier about systemic thinking. The other people think reductionistically; they don't think systemically, holistically, and they tend to think linearly. Right, right. Not exponentially. Not exponentially, and that is crucial. What the the word exponential. In the in the colloquial vocabulary, usually means it's going very fast, right. <laughs> which is not what it which can be part of exponential, but it means so much more with extraordinary consequences if you don't understand it. 
Yeah. And the problem, one of the problems we're facing is we don't have literate people in that sense, scientifically literate people running the show. Well, that is that's that is a problem. One of the things I can attest to, and, and we've talked about this um, at Shopify, is we are so used to exponential growth that really yeah. quickly when we looked at the COVID nineteen data, we're like, oh, we've like we're not coming to work at the office. No one's congregating. No one's traveling. We yeah. made that decision really quickly because it was just easy to understand how the trends would play out. Right. No, you know? we, we were one of the. Yeah, I mean, SFI was one of the first places to close down anywhere. Right. It was obvious to everybody, and yeah. we just shut. Yeah, uh, so mindful of your time. Although I'd love to talk to you forever, I told I completely enjoyed this. Let's let's leave on a positive note. If if this is a historical defining epoch defining event, COVID nineteen, what's the one big thing that gets better potentially after we come out of this? Well, I'd like to think, going back to the beginning of the conversation, that um, that it enhances uh, social connectivity across the globe, that there is a recognition, so to speak, uh, that we're all in this together, that we're all inevitably connected, uh, and uh, that um, we, we, we need to have that as part of our consciousness, that we're you know that you know to use again another platitude tribalism is has its place by the way i'm not uh, you know certainly has its place but one needs to see it again in this systemic way it's integral part of the whole that one is a citizen of everything from your family to your company to your city to your state to your country to the globe and that we have those and uh, we need to recognize that. Uh, so I hope that comes out of it uh, and that the, the great interconnectivity and associated with that, which is not something that's going to come out of it, but is the great unity of all things. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the grand moral theory of, of scaling laws, courtesy of yeah. your Jeffrey West. Jeff, thank you very much. But, I really, really enjoyed this. So, good. Me too, Toby. And I'd love to talk again. And we can yeah. talk more anytime. Obviously, I'm sure we will. And I really, I appreciated it very much. I enjoyed it immensely. It doesn't seem like more than I'm just looking up the clock down below here. More than two hours. Exactly. Gosh. Okay. Well, at least we enjoyed. It. I don't know if anyone else did, but you and I certainly did. I mean. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, well, take good care and keep well. Yes, you too. Be safe. Your family. Yes. Etc. Okay. Take okay. care. Bye bye and thank you. Right. Bye bye. Bye bye. 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 bye.